Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 30, please. Jeremiah chapter 30. Uh, by the way, on a, on a very serious note, I just wanted to mention that um, uh, keep uh, the Luna family uh, in your prayers. Pat Luna, who is one of our, our prayer counselors, and her husband, uh, it was actually her husband's uh, uh, grandmother, uh, passed away. Uh, they were out of town. As a matter of fact, I think they were in San Antonio or Dallas. But anyway, she passed away, the grandmother of uh, Pat's husband. And um, they're having a service right next door right now. Uh, this was kind of quick, so we didn't get any information on it. But uh, please keep them in prayer. There is a, a service tomorrow. Uh, and because the family had so many different religious uh, backgrounds, uh, I, nobody really knew where they were going to be tomorrow. So uh, the important thing is keep uh, Pat and her husband in prayer and, and their family. Jeremiah chapter 30, please. I'd like to read verses 7 through 9 to you. Uh, it was something we studied last time, but uh, uh, I want to begin there because there's a few things I want to add to what I stated last week. Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, and I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Shall we pray? Father, this evening we ask for the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit to be upon us as we study your precious word tonight. I pray, Father, that... Uh, Lord, you will be with Bill and Linda McLean as he goes and suffers through this, this cancer. Lord, we pray for a healing upon his body. We pray to just, Lord God, that you would just be merciful to him in a great and awesome way. But as he's getting these treatments, Lord God, may you, may you help us, Lord, to help him in whatever way we can. As he travels all these miles, 90 miles or so, to, to get to... Uh, to Beaumont for his treatments. Lord, we just lift him up to you. We pray, Father, that you'll give him strength. And, uh, but but impo most importantly, his healing. We, we pray, Father, tonight for Pat uh, and her husband and, and uh, the uh, loss that they had this week. Father, may you bless the whole family through their time of grief and suffering. And we pray, Father, as well for our school and our kids, Lord God, who tonight, I'm sure, their parents and they are making plans in other directions. Lord, we, we do know that uh, your will is perfect, and we desire to follow you into that. So we just lift these, up, uh, these things up to you tonight and ask that you would help us to uh, prepare, Father, for possibly the coming year, whatever it may be. But we know, Lord God, that you have your hand upon us. We pray that you'll cleanse and purify our hearts now as we come to your word. Fill us with your spirit. Give us your wisdom and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We began our study last week in chapter 30 by examining both the phrase that's found in verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble, and that which we call the day of the Lord, or in that day. And I, If you weren't able to be with us, you might want to get the CD and, and get caught up with us. But one point that I may have alluded to but didn't state directly 
concerning the time of Jacob's trouble is that it coincides with what we call the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel. Now I did mention the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, specifically verse 27, and we read that verse last week. Daniel 9.27 again says, then he, conf- then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The he there, by the way, is who we would probably call the a prince who is to come, the Antichrist. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall, he, uh, shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, we're not going to study Daniel tonight, but, uh, but I do need to mention that the one week was not like our regular seven-day week, but a time period of seven years. To understand this labeling of time, we need to consider the previous verses in Daniel. So go back to verse 24, where it says 70 weeks. Now that's literally in the Hebrew, 70 sevens. And as a matter of fact, the word Sabbath comes from that same word. And uh, uh, so 70 weeks or 70 sevens are determined for your people and for your holy city. That's Israel and for Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand. So this is telling us that we need to understand the things that will be revealed in this. And again, we're not studying the book of Daniel, but this is important for us to understand the time of Jacob's trouble. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So from uh, 445 B.C. when Artaxerxes made the decree uh, to once again restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Jesus comes, there shall be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. So if those are years, weeks of years, Then there's seven weeks, which is a 49-year period. If you go from 445 B.C. to uh, whatever that is, uh, you know, uh, 397, whatever. Uh, Anyway, that's that's the actual end of when the word uh, of of the Old Testament is finished, because Malachi was the last prophet, and that was the time of Malachi. Then it just picks up. There's nothing in between that. The next 62 weeks will take us right to the point of Jesus coming. So it says the street shall be built again and, even, and the wall even the troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, which means that's when he dies on the cross, but not for himself. Now we know that he didn't die for himself, he died for us. So we understand that. And the people of the prince who is to come, again, the prince who is to come would be Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. He's had a lot of... Uh, uh, People that have gone before him, uh, for example, uh, Titus in AD 70 destroyed the temple. Back we've already studied about Nebuchadnezzar and destroying the city and the temple. Uh, so 
Antichrist. Uh, and then after the intertestamental period, or in the intertestamental period, we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes, back around 200 B.C., who did the very same thing, went into the temple and desecrated it. It says, uh, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until, until the end of the war desolations are determined. So, 77s is, in Daniel's counting, a span of 490 years. Remember that Israel and Judah had failed to keep the sabbatical years throughout their history, uh, in which every seven years the land was to lie fallow, which means you let it just lie there, you don't till it, you don't cultivate it, you don't do anything to it. So every seventh year they were supposed to do that. And because of that failure, in that they didn't do that, they kept cultivating the land every seventh year rather than being obedient to the Lord then the Lord enforced on the land the uh, 70 Sabbaths so in Leviticus 26 so you'll understand this from the history that is given to us in the law in Leviticus 26 verses 34 and 35 it says in the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths now what is what, what was done on the Sabbath rest you had to let the land rest so the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. So that's a, a prophecy that's saying, you know, if you're in your enemy's land, it's going to be lying a, a, a fellow because you weren't supposed to be doing it for all those many years. So as long as it lies desolate, it shall rest for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And so 490 years would be required to complete 70 sabbatical years. Why? Because 70 times 7 is 490 years. So, uh, to complete 70 sabbatical years with one occurring every 7 years. Now, I don't want to expound on this in detail, except to make clear the issue that the final 7 years of the 490 years, do you remember we talked about 7 years and then 62 weeks of years? It was seven weeks of years, 62 weeks of years. That adds up to 69 weeks of years, doesn't it? 62 plus 7 is 69. So there's one week that isn't accounted for, at least up to what we read there in Daniel. So the issue here that I want to make clear is that the final seven years of the 490 years which, by the way, they are supposed to be in captivity or in some kind of uh, chastisement for their sin, would be the seven years of tribulation that begin with the confirmation of a covenant with the people of Israel for peace and safety and the allowance of their temple for sacrifice once again. All that is necessary for all this to take place in the future and in the near future. That covenant would be made by the prince or the ruler who is to come, who we have normally called the Antichrist. Now all this means that the 490 years were the years of punishment and captivity under a number of oppressors that Israel would have to endure because of their sin and rebellion against their God. But in the end, there would be this. If, are you still in Daniel 9? If you, if you are, look at verse 24 again. In Daniel 9:24, it says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people. So that's 70 weeks of years, 490 years, for your people and for your holy city. And here's the reason. To finish the transgression. In other words, we have, God says, I'm going to punish your transgression. But I'm going to finish it, though. 
It's not going to be a continual one. For all the years that you left the land, and, uh, you know, that you didn't leave it fallow, and all, this is your punishment, but it's going to finish, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins. Well, I tell you what, when they were uh, in Babylon for 70 years, they went back to the land of Israel, they went back to Jerusalem. Did they continue to sin? Sure. So there wasn't the end of sin there. And then it says, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Well, that was only going to come later on. It, it, that had to come through Messiah. To bring in everlasting righteousness. That hasn't happened yet, you see. What is this saying? It's pointing to the future. To seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, all vision and prophecy will finally be sealed and completed. And then to anoint the most holy. Who would that be? That's Messiah. So you see, everything is pointing as to the completion of these 490 years. Everything is pointing to the future. So this brings us right back to our text in Jeremiah 30. Because last week we referred to this chapter and all the way through chapter 33 as the book of consolation. The book of comfort. In contrast to all the pain that is suggested in verse 7, because it talks about what? It talks about the, um, the day that is great, which is the day of the Lord. There's none like it. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Nonetheless, he's going to be saved out of it, you see. So in contrast to all the pain that is suggested in verse 7, there will be a day of deliverance. That's what this whole chapter and the rest of the few chapters after this is all about. It is about a day of deliverance. Let's go back to verse 8. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck. The yoke of the oppressor will be broken from Israel and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So there will be a day when the yoke of bondage and oppression will, would be completely broken from Israel's neck. There are some people who believe today that uh, we, we've already finished the day of the Gentiles. That, that's not the case. That's, still, that's not the case yet. They, they believe that in 1967, you know, uh, when, when Israel came back into Jerusalem and took over Jerusalem after the Six-Day War, that uh, the time of the Gentiles has ended. No, it hasn't ended. Do you know why? Because, first of all, the city's somewhat divided. The city of Jerusalem is divided. Then you have the United States and, and all these other countries telling Israel and, and, and the Palestinians what to do. The, the Gentiles are very much still involved in what's going on in Israel. So, this is, is not... Uh, when, when the, uh, uh, when we think of, of that breaking of the bondage, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't really come yet. As a matter of fact, it hasn't come. Why? Because Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet. But I can tell you this, not too long ago, I think it was probably around the beginning of this, this year and, and when we were doing our prophecy updates, I had alluded to something from the scriptures that, that we should really pay attention to, and that is, that, that we ought to consider that much of what the Antichrist is, who he is and where he is and where he's from, may very well come from the Islamic invasion rather than what we would consider a revived Roman Empire, even though that's still an important factor in prophecy. 
But why is there today such an emphasis of this Islamic ideal and, 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 and thought and, and desire and, 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 and plan and, and so on and so forth? See, that, that wasn't around. When we were looking at things 30 years ago, uh, we were looking at, uh, you know, a revived the Roman Empire and, and so on and so forth. Uh, they saying there had to be a ten-nation confederacy in the European common market that's now the European whatever it's called. And, uh, but there's 22 states, I think, right now, or 22 nations in that. So that ten-state theory kind of went out the, the window there. So uh, what we have to understand is God, God has it all together, and he's revealing it when we need to know it. But the important thing here is that they haven't been completely broken from the yoke. So it was partially broken when the Jews returned from Babylon, but not completely, and certainly not eternally. So Israel's true freedom will not come until King Jesus, the son of David, the royal son of David, when King Jesus returns, that's when Israel will be free completely. And how interesting that it says in verse 9, whom I will raise up for them. Because think about the implication of that statement. Whom I will raise up for them. And I, if I be lifted up, shall draw all men unto me, Jesus said in John 12. When we see Jesus raised in Jerusalem, where is he raised? On a cross. And the world takes notice. And when Jesus is in a tomb... It is God who raises him up from the dead. Whom I will raise up for them. How interesting. Think about something I, I, I mentioned last week from Ezekiel chapter 34. I'll, I'll read it again, verses 23 and 24. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David. Now, does that mean that David has to rise from the dead? Who comes from David? Jesus. So, one shepherd over them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. What prince do we know comes from the line of David? The prince of peace. Who is the prince of peace? Jesus Christ. Even Jesus himself in John 10 verse 11 said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus came to do. By the way, the sheep, the first, good, the first sheep are, are, are Israel. Are the people of Israel. And then he says there are others. Those are the Gentile believers. So, Jew and Gentile, the walls are broken between Jew and Gentile because of Jesus Christ. Because he's the good shepherd of the sheep. So while we're dealing with an event yet to come, when the Jews will endure the suffering of the tribulation period, and in the end be freed from their slavery to Antichrist, that is also a principle in the scriptures. The, the part that deals with the, endure, the enduring of suffering. I'd like for you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Because it's a biblical principle about the virtue of suffering. 
And yes, that's what I called it, the virtue of suffering. Now, I'm not saying, as you're turning to 1 Peter 4, go find all the suffering you can and get it. No, you don't have to do that. Suffering will come to you in a number of ways. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. That's a tremendous statement when he says, arm yourself with the same mind. The mind of realizing how Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. Arm yourself also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now let me explain to you that it isn't about beating the sin out of our bodies. It isn't about beating the sin out of our bodies. We need to have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Listen, willing to do whatever is necessary to conquer sin. Willing to do whatever is necessary to conquer sin. Sometimes it involves suffering, folks. And only you will understand when you have to start letting go of sin, letting go of things that are not right before God, when you start letting them go, you've got to suffer a little bit. But God will use our suffering to draw us closer to Him. God will use our suffering to draw us closer to Him. Jesus broke the bondage of sin for us on the cross and somehow... This becomes a practical example for us to follow. Did Jesus not say to us, Follow me. Pick up your cross. Pick up your cross and follow me. When you pick up your cross, what are, you talk- what are we talking about? Picking up the very thing that stands for execution. This thing that stands for putting this flesh to death so that we might be alive in Christ. Being dead to sin and dead to ourselves, but alive to Jesus Christ. I want you to remember, never run from suffering, but if it comes, remember it draws us near to God. It draws us near to Christ. I want you to listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 71. He said, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. We can't sit here tonight and define every way that suffering comes, but most of us, if we've been any amount of time with the Lord, will know that we've had to deal with some kinds of suffering. Sometimes it's a matter of loss. Sometimes it's a matter of physical pain or emotional pain or emotional distress. But whatever it might be, we know that God said, I'll be with you. And there are times when we go through those times of suffering that we sense that the Lord is with us more than when 
Everything's hunky-dory, everything's fine and dandy. That's why we've been encouraging you to pray even when things are good. Not just pray when things are going south. Pray when things... Pray every day. That's that's why we studied the, the Lord's Prayer a few weeks ago on Sunday morning. Give us this day our daily bread. Not our weekly bread or our monthly bread or our yearly bread. Give us this day. That means we've got to pray every day. And so God's promise of restoration, getting back to the children of Israel and getting back to the promise of Messiah, God's promise of restoration was designed to give Israel hope. When we call this the book of consolation, it means that there is hope in the words of chapters 30 through 33. So in verses 10 and 11, it says, Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. This can be seen as all-inclusive of all of Israel, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel, which was the ten tribes of the north, or the two southern tribes of, of Judah in the south. He's really speaking of one Israel, who've all gone into captivity. The northern kingdom to the Assyrians, the southern kingdom to the Babylonians. But they're all going through their captivity. And he says, don't fear my servant Jacob. Jacob being the one who, before he was given the name Israel, was a conniver. So in the flesh and even in the spirit, he says, Nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar. It doesn't matter how far you are, I will save you and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. So the promise is there, you see. The promise of hope, the promise of restoration is being given. And then he says, For I am with you, says the Lord. Now there can't be any greater promise than that. I am with you, saith the Lord, to save you. I am with you to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. I'm not going to destroy you. Why is it that some people today, uh, in some um, views of Christianity, think that God has completely forsaken Israel? When here he says, I will not make a complete end of you. I think that's pretty clear. I don't know how better to uh, interpret that than what it says. I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice. Notice, which means you sinned, I'm going to correct you. You're my people. And will not let you go altogether unpunished. I'm a just God. Therefore, if the nations see me, they see that I love you but I'm going to judge you or punish you for what you've done against my word. If I let you go, I am not God. So it's a wonderful thing as we look at those first two, ver- those two verses, verses 10 and 11, to, to know that no nation, especially Israel, would be too far away for the Lord to reach out and rescue His people. It doesn't matter where anybody has been scattered. God knows where everyone is. 
God knows where all His people are tonight. Whether they're in Israel, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa, wherever they are, God knows where they are. New York City, Brooklyn, the Bronx, there are a lot of them over there, Miami. He knows where they are. Even if they're in, the, even if they're in Antarctica, God knows that they're there. And it's not hard for him to bring them from there to where he wants them to be and rescue them. As a matter of fact, Jewish people from all over the world have already made their way to the land of promise. Now what we read in these verses has not yet been fulfilled to completion because there is certainly a tremendous amount of fear on all sides of Israel today. So this hasn't come to completion yet. There's a lot of fear in Israel. And even though we have been to Israel, we're looking forward to going again soon, whatever it is, the people fear. Why? Because every day, every day there is always the threat of some kind of bombing, some kind of terrorist attack, some kind of uh, missile launch. It hasn't happened much in recent weeks, but it always happens and it's been happening since they became a nation in 1948. All of our tours that we've taken for over the many years and tours that have been going, they still go. We go because we don't fear man, we fear the Lord, you know, so that's the important thing there. But, but the fact is, there's still this fear in Israel today. What is, their, what is their desire? Their desire is for peace. They want peace in Israel. They're tired of all the bloodshed. They're tired of all the killing. Now, what I mean by all sides, that Israel is... is, is uh, there's fear on all sides is, is this. Consider that, that what we know to be Israel today, a nation only the size of the state of New Jersey, is surrounded by over 80 million enemies to the north, south, and east. 80 million enemies of Israel. And then, of course, on the west is what? The Mediterranean Sea. They're surrounded on all sides. They have no place to run. They have no place to hide. Do you understand now their fears? Pretty easy to understand that. Eighty million enemies. There is a tremendous restraint today, not because of man, but because of the Holy Spirit. Because of God. And because of God's timetable. And because of God's love for His people. There's a tremendous restraint. But one day the restraint will go away. And the restrainer, who is the Holy Spirit, will go away for a time. So that those last seven years that we've been talking about will come to their completion. So that at the end of that seven-year period, who comes? Jesus the Messiah. So when the Lord Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, then his people will live in the land without terror and fear and in definite peace. Certain and definite peace. Now, we have a better understanding why we sing and celebrate the first and second comings of the Lord, right? We have a better understanding as, as to why we celebrate the birth of the, the Lord Jesus, why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, why we also celebrate what? His coming again. And he's coming again. This is why in, in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, For unto us a child is born. We sing about it. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. 
and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, I want you to notice these words, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward. Even forever now, you see, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Not man, no nations, no governments, no kingdoms. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So you can be assured that Jesus Christ is coming again. My hope is that we're ready for that. My hope is that we don't take these last days for granted. My hope is that we pay close attention to what God's Word says, close attention to what's happening in the world today, close attention to what's happening in our own nation today, and not stick our heads in the proverbial sand. We must be awake and we must be alive as the church of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming again? Then live like you believe it. Live like you believe it. You see, in Jeremiah's time, Israel's condition was critical. It was critical. The false prophets were attempting to put band-aids on an arterial bleeder. How many, how many of you know that that's not going to work? About half of us here know that it's not going to work. That means the other half doesn't have a lot of understanding of medical things. Folks, you can't put a band-aid on an arterial bleeder. And as you and I know, what's happening today, you know, it's, we're, we're trying to put band-aids on a lot of stuff. It's not going to work. I want you to look at verses 12 through 15 now of, uh, of Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable. Please think about this for a moment. Are there incurable diseases today? There are. And to the world and to man, there are some things they just can't cure. But we know one who can. You see how we need to start thinking as believers in Jesus Christ? God is saying the truth. Your affliction, Israel, is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause. He goes from the medical to the legal. There's no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. In other words, all the nations that you were trusting in before, they've forgotten you. They do not seek you. I have to stop there and tell you, we're in we, we in the United States of America are in trouble of fulfilling that particular passage of Scripture for our time. If we forsake Israel, we're in a lot of trouble. If we forsake Israel and forget Israel as their friend and as their only ally, we as a nation are in trouble. 
And we're just about there. We're just about there. Look at, it, look at what it says. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable. Because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. I have done these things to you. How desperate can circumstances become because of sin? The sins of the Jewish people were so severe and so grievous that their hopes of the, of the punishment, in this case the exile, coming to an end, the hopes of, of that punishment coming to an end was in vain. That's how severe their sin was. Listen to the cry in Jeremiah 8.22. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Jeremiah 15 verse 18 says, Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream, as waters that fail? Listen to the words of Second Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised His words. Please don't be like people that found the judgment of God because they mocked the message and the messenger. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people, till there was no remedy. That's pretty severe, isn't it? And then uh, we mentioned there, as we, as we saw in, in, verse, uh, in verse 13, the image of a court of justice, there was no one standing in the gap for the people. There was no one standing in the gap. Ezekiel, who prophesied in Babylon around the time of Jeremiah, would write, after describing the sins of the people, prophets and people, uh, priests, prophets and people, this is what he would write in Ezekiel 22, verses 30 and 31. He says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. I think those are some of the saddest words in the Bible. But I found no one. This is God speaking. I found no one to stand in the gap. I found no intercessors, no watchmen, no one to stand in the gap. Therefore I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. The allies in whom the people of Israel had placed so much hope, Assyria and Egypt, had forgotten and forsaken her. And even the Lord had to strike her as He would a, an enemy and punish her because of her guilt. God says, I have done these things to you. Let me, let me interject here very quickly because of time. But I, I need to interject here that some of you may have seen this morning the 
return of the two journalists from North Korea and how former President Clinton had gone. And, you know, if you read about how that all came about, it wasn't as we may have thought that uh, there was negotiation. It was a whole plan deal with North Korea and all of that. But all that aside, all that aside, and I don't know, and I, and I have to be honest with you, I, I haven't read anything beyond that because of, you know, just getting ready for tonight, but, but just the initial thing, the initial welcome and greeting and then the initial statements by these two young ladies thanking the president, thanking Al Gore who owns current TV or is one of the founders of it and they work for him, and thanking all these people and thanking their families and thanking everybody. You know, I never heard anybody say, thank you, Lord. Never heard that. That's kind of strange. I've heard that a lot in a lot of various venues and things, but today was kind of interesting. Never heard, heard it all. Al Gore, who was supposedly a Baptist, spoke, and he didn't say a thing about God. Of course, he's so much into his global warming, maybe he's fried his brain. But he hasn't said anything about it. Didn't hear anybody say anything about God's help in all of this. Strange, our, our country is getting to that place where no mention of that. What do we say? Are we forsaking God? Because man is the one who's done all this stuff. Can we as his people grieve our great and awesome God? Can we grieve our great and awesome God? The Bible tells us what we do. Psalm 78, verses 40 through 42 says, How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Oh my Lord, may we never limit you, Lord. How can we limit God? They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from their enemy or from the enemy. Isaiah 63, verse 10, But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit, so He turned Himself against them as an enemy, and He fought against them. Well, it's not a good thing to forget God. It's not a good thing to grieve the Holy Spirit. Because we're told in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, Therefore put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Folks, this is Paul speaking to the church. We who are supposed to have the Holy Spirit of God in us. Put away lying. Let each of you speak truth. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Listen carefully. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. New Testament. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. That was a tremendous list that Paul gave to the church in Ephesus. And, and, and you know why? Why would he say all of that if some of that wasn't happening? 
If people who said they are believers in Jesus Christ weren't lying and being angry with each other and, 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 and being wrathful and, and stealing and, and uh, being lazy and, and speaking corrupt words and, and doing all kinds of other things, bitter, wrath, anger, clamor, all that stuff. Why would he say it if they weren't doing it? Do you understand? And he says all of these things grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So as the Lord is telling his people, listen, your affliction is incurable. No one has stood up for you. But in effect, he's also saying this. He's saying there is, there's no reason for you to complain because your affliction is just. There's no reason to complain because your affliction is just. You have sinned against me. Had you obeyed me, I would have blessed you. If you had obeyed me, I would have given you the best. Because that's what I wanted to give you. But you disobeyed. And so in verses 16 and 17, it says, Therefore all those who devour you shall be devoured. Now this is the good part. I understand where we're coming from. He has, to, he has to make it clear about their sin. But now he says... But those who devour you shall be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be, become plunder. And all who prey upon you will make a prey. For I will restore health to you. You see, it's not man that's going to save Israel. It's not man that's going to save his people. It's not man that saves us. He says, I will restore to you and heal you of your wounds. Whatever you think is incurable, whatever I've told you is incurable, I'm the only one that can still cure it. I'm the only one that can still heal you. Because they call you an outcast saying, This is Zion, no one seeks her. Well, you're my people. And I love you. And I've put you through this. But I'll heal you. And while everything appeared hopeless because of Israel's condition, the Lord promised to reverse His people's misfortunes. Note the wonderful promise of the Lord. The day is coming when God will personally execute judgment on all the enemies of His people. All who have oppressed, all who have plundered and destroyed His people will face His terrifying judgment. They themselves will be oppressed. They will be plundered. They will be destroyed. But He will restore His people to health. He will heal both the spiritual and the physical wounds of all who have truly turned to Him. He will forgive them. He will heal their souls. He will deliver their bodies from all oppression and the attacks of the enemy. At the close of the day of the Lord, and remember I said that the day of the Lord is not a single day. It is a period of time. But at the close of the day of the Lord, God will deliver His people from all suffering. No longer will there be any death or curse on the earth. And listen to what it says in Revelation 21 verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. As we continue reading on, we see how God's restoration will involve a physical rebuilding. Look at verses 18 and 19. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents, 
In other words, I'll bring my people back to the land. Have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound. By the way, if you go to Tel Aviv, the word Tel, by the way, means mounds of ruins. The word Tel means mounds of ruins. We go to a lot of places in Israel, and there's this Tel and that Tel and William Tel and everything else. But the word Tel just means mounds of ruins. You see, the people, when they went back into a place that had been destroyed, they just built on top of it. Just built another city. That's why the archaeologists just are always working, because they keep going down into various levels and different levels, and they keep finding and discovering things. They just built on top of the other. Jerusalem is built that way as, as, as well. But it says, They shall be built upon its own mound, and the palace shall remain according to its plan. And then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving in the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them, and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. So the city of Jerusalem with its houses and palace would be rebuilt. This certainly has been fulfilled. The people have experienced a certain sense of prosperity in having returned to the land. That will increase all the more when the Lord Jesus returns. They will also be filled with thanksgiving and joy. This was fulfilled in part when they returned from their captivity in Babylon. We read in Psalm 126, verses 1-3, through 3, When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Folks, if the Lord has done great things for you, don't you think that we ought to give thanks to the Lord? Don't you think we ought to rejoice in the Lord for the great things He's done? I mean, and, and the fact of the matter is He's done such great things, so many great things, we should never stop rejoicing. Even in our times of struggle, we are to be a rejoicing people. Not too long ago I said a redeemed people is a rejoicing people. But the ultimate fulfillment is going to be in the kingdom age. It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. Isaiah 51, verse 11. So the ransom of the, Lord, ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. Notice, everlasting joy. That hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And they will also enjoy a peaceful, safe and normal life in established communities when Jesus comes to reign in Jerusalem. Listen, uh, verses 20 and 21. Their children also shall be as before, and their congregations shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be from among them, which means they're not going to have foreigners telling them what to do any longer. Their nobles shall be from among them, and their governors shall come from their midst. Then I will cause them to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me? Do you know what that's saying? It's saying the Messiah doesn't come just as king. He also comes as priest. Priest and king. To us, Jesus is priest, king, and prophet. But in that day, he will be priest and king. And what a wonderful thing it will be for children to once again play outside their homes without the fear of kidnappings, abuse, violence, oppression and lawlessness. And then once again the leader in Israel will be one of their own, not a foreign despot. That leader of course will be Jesus himself, functioning as both priest and king, able to approach God his Father to be at his right hand. You see that's the priest, able to approach God. Listen to Psalm 110. As a matter of fact, you've got to hear the whole thing. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
Every time we see the word right hand or the phrase right hand, arm of the Lord, what are we talking about? Jesus. So it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. That's to Jesus. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. There, therefore he shall lift up the head. So again, just to see that Jesus is not just king, he's also priest. And Israel will finally experience the relationship with God that he had always intended. They will finally experience the relationship with God that he had always intended. That's what will happen when Messiah returns to Jerusalem. And last, uh, lastly, there is coming a day when God will pour out his wrath like a whirlwind, destroying the wicked so that his purposes may be established. The kingdom of God will be set up and righteousness will fill this land. Verses 22 through 24 says, You shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury. A continuing whirlwind, it will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will consider it. It must be remembered that before God's blessings can be experienced and appreciated, he must judge sin. Sin must be judged, wickedness must be judged. Rebellion must be judged. You see, when God created the heavens and the earth and he made all things good, there was to be that kind of atmosphere, that kind of life. God being in control of all things, his people just loving the fact that God has loved them and given them everything in the garden, but... But he said, but there's one tree. You know, we don't have to go through the whole story of Adam and Eve going to the wrong tree. You know that they had access to the tree of life, but they didn't go there. They went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that God said, don't go there, because on the day that you eat of that tree, you'll die. Sin entered into the world. And don't, don't be confused by those people who tell you that there's not really that much evil in the world, that there's good in everybody. No, the Bible says one thing. There's no good in one of us. The only good we'll have is when we surrender the person we were, the person who lived according to the flesh, and forsake that old man and receive the newness of life that comes through Jesus Christ and let Christ live in us. So we're new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away because all things have become new. But sin has to be judged. I just find it laughable sometimes when people say, well, we'll probably see Hitler in heaven. I don't think so. I don't think so. Especially not after killing six million of, his, of God's people. We won't see that. Folks, judgment is real. 
Sin is real. But God is more real. And God's love is more real if we'll just receive it and accept it. It must be remembered that God's blessing can be experienced and appreciated. But before that happens, he has to deal with sin. The words of verses 23 and 24 are referring really to the false prophets when he talks about those who will receive his judgment are repeated here with minor variations from Jeremiah 23, verses 19 and 20, where it says, Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. And then notice this. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. Now notice the end of verse 20 in Jeremiah 23 and the end of verse 24 in Jeremiah 30. It says, in the latter days you will understand perfectly. Back when we read verse 24 of 30, it says, in the latter days you will consider it. You will understand perfectly. Adam Clark, in his commentary on Jeremiah, makes this comment. And then he asks the question. Listen to what he says. Had the Jews properly considered this subject, they would long ere this have been brought into the liberty of the gospel and saved from the maledictions under which they now groan. In other words, had they, had, had they considered what the Word of God had said, they would have not have come to the place where they are. Why then, and here's the question, why do not the Jews read their own prophets more conscientiously? But let me ask you this, why don't we? Why don't we? Because you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11? He says, when he's talking about the things that happened in, in, in the wilderness with Moses and, the, and, and all the people, he said, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Everything in the Old Testament was written for us and for our admonition. Because the ends of the ages is coming where we are. We need to remember that the tribulation that we've been speaking of in this chapter is called a time of wrath. The time of Jacob's trouble is called a time of tribulation, which literally means wrath, judgment. Revelation 6, 17 says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who's going to be able to stand when the wrath of God comes? What about the church? Is the church destined for this same wrath? No, God has made that really clear. I hope that in the next few days, we can, uh, next few weeks or so, we can talk a little bit about the rapture of the church. Because you see, as for the church, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 11, Paul says this, he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath. He did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We come to Christ, we don't go through wrath. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no wrath for the believer in Jesus Christ. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but He appointed us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. He says he died for us that whether we wake or sleep we should live together with him. John 14, I think I quoted this at the end of last week's study. 
Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm coming for you. And where I am, there you will be also. Because I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to gather you to myself. That's what God is doing with his people. But folks, you've got to be his people. You've got to be his. You've got to know him. And you've got to trust him. And so in chapter 30, what we've looked at for the last couple of weeks, we've been given somewhat of, a, of an idea of some of the timetable of the last days. Specifically, the seven-year tribulation period. The seven years of tribulation at the middle of it, when the covenant is broken by the Antichrist, the last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. Because there will be no time like it. That's the day of the Lord. And all that time. Do you know what day we're looking for? We're not looking for the day of the Lord. I'm not. I'm looking for the day of Christ. When he said, I'm coming for you. The trumpet of the archangel. The voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God is blown. He gathers us unto himself. That's the day, that's the day he told us to look for. Keep looking up, he said, because your redemption draws near. Your redemption. Not your wrath. But you've got to be right with God. You've got to be right with Jesus. I hope you will. I hope you will be. Let's pray.